Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Thinking Commercially podcast, the business podcast with me, Ben Triggs, and also the wonderful Chris Stokes. What we'll be covering this month is GameStop and the rise in armchair traders, also the rise in green investment and consumption, ASOS and Boohoo taking over high street brands, and why research reports are so important to commercial awareness. Get this and lots more in this episode. Hi there, Chris, and welcome to the podcast. How are you getting on there, Chris? I'm, I'm, I'm very well. Thank you very much, Ben. Getting slightly fed up with uh, lockdown, but then who isn't? But otherwise, um, great to be back. Aren't we all? Aren't we all? I feel, I feel like it's kind of a wasted question asking you what you've been up to and stuff like that. I think most of us know what we've all been up to lately is very much watching a lot of, uh, a lot of Netflix, um, doing our work and, um, and going for the occasional bit of a walk for a bit of light relief um, as well. Um, but yes, welcome everybody to, uh, to this episode. Um, really excited to be back. Hopefully it is giving you a bit of uh, relief and a bit of upskilling during this lockdown period. Um, what we're doing is we're covering three stories each uh, month and one bonus one as well um, to help you understand core business stories that are happening at the moment, but also wider commercial awareness themes. If you are enjoying the podcast, hopefully you are, hopefully there's, you're going to be, have friends that are going to, would enjoy equally to you and make sure that you do share the, the podcast. Um, I don't know, Valentine's Day is coming up. It could even be a gift to share the, share the love of, of this podcast as well. Or maybe a, maybe a second gift, probably not the main gift as well. Um, you'll be pleased to know that myself and Chris won't be giving much more um, love advice. We're very much focused on the business side of things. Um, and it's been really interesting to see um, some of the stories that we covered last time, if you've listened to it. Um, come up again in the news. You might have seen that uh, Tesla, Elon Musk, bought a lot of Bitcoin, which shares uh, or the price of Bitcoin rocket up um, over the last couple of weeks. Um, but we're not going to be covering uh, that this week. We've got um, three fresh stories for you. So let's get started. Great stuff. So the first story that we're going to be focusing on this week is something that I'm sure that you would have seen. It's one of the stories that definitely has cut through, um, even despite the fact there's lots been going on in the media about COVID and uh, lockdowns, but was the GameStop story. So you might have noticed uh, this bit, it came up in the financial press across the last few weeks, but basically armchair traders, um, people um, at home, utilizing a platform, Reddit, uh, to coordinate um, and to share trading tips, basically surged the price of GameStop from about, I think about $20 to um, over $400 at uh, one point um, to try and make a, a quick buck. It's been sort of, um, sort of touted as a sort of David and Goliath side story of, uh, of, of these armchair traders versus, versus these hedge funds in Wall Street. Chris, what are, your, what are you thinking about this story? Um, well, it's an interesting one because um, I was very interested to see that, the, that professional commentators, people who were in the markets themselves, 
uh, was saying quite interesting things. Well, one said, um, oh, you know, this is great. It's the democratization of finance. And another was saying, it's really good, especially if it's young people who are doing this because, you know, it'll get them interested in saving into their pensions. And I was thinking, well, I'm not actually sure I agree with either of those comments. I don't think this was really the democratization of finance or the financial markets. And I don't think that this sort of trading is actually the sort of trading that um, is good for your pension fund long, long term. But I, I suppose the, the starting point is, is to look at what shorting a stock is, um, because that's essentially what was happening. These uh, so-called hedge funds were shorting the GameStop stock and the armchair traders, as it were, were then uh, buying the stock to offset the short. So what is shorting a stock? And this is kind of part of the Alice in Wonderland uh, of the financial markets. Um, because, uh, for example, if, if I, let's say I, I decide to buy a house, let's say, and I tell one of my trading friends, he or she will say, oh, you've just gone long of property. And I'll say, well, <laughs> I've just bought a house because I need a place to live. But when you're in the financial markets, um, buying something is a statement that you think that asset is going to go up in value. So, uh, you know, when if, if I were to buy a car, they'd say, oh, you've gone long, long of cars. And I'd say, no, I've just bought a car. And they might think buying a car, they wouldn't think that was a very valuable asset to have unless it was a Ferrari that went up in value. But because in the markets they talk about going long of things equally, they feel you can go short of them. So if you buy something because you think it's going to go up in value, equally you should be able to sell it if you think it's going to go down in value. And that's what shorting a stock is. It means selling a stock that you don't actually own. So the question that then arises, and I'm not going to make this terribly technical, but it is useful to know, how, how can you sell a stock that you don't own? And the answer is, you do you you get the benefit of something called stock lending. So these big institutional investors that hold shares, they're going to be holding shares for a long time, 10, 20, 30 years. And by lending these shares out, they get a fee for that. So if I'm a hedge fund and I think GameStop is overpriced and I want to short the stock, I sell it at today's price. I borrow GameStop shares from an institutional investor. And then when I have to deliver the shares, which is usually two or three days time to the person who's bought them from me, I deliver the shares I borrowed to that buyer. And then at that point, I go into the market on the assumption that GameStop has gone down in price and buy the shares back to return to the institutional investor. And what enables that to happen is that shares are what's called fungible. So whether the institutional investor gets the exact share back doesn't matter. All shares in GameStop are, are the same. So that, that's, that's what shorting a stock is. And then I suppose the question is, well, who does this? And, and the, the popular press talk about hedge funds. Well, hedge fund is a, it's, it's an umbrella term that essentially means people in the market who take speculative positions it comes from uh, uh, the days when uh, funds used derivatives to hedge, that's to say to mitigate, to offset risk. Whereas nowadays, a hedge fund doesn't do that. It uses derivatives actually to take a speculative um, position. So 
essentially what these hedge funds are doing is they're shorting GameStop, driving the price down, then buying back at a lower price. And that's, that's how they make their money. So that's the background to it, Ben. Amazing. And with GameStop, as I say, there was one of their more senior people um, said something previous to all of this, said that the business was struggling, potential that they could be uh, going under at some point. Their share price was floating, say, at the start of this year around $20. Um, so the hedge fund the hedge funds believed that it would go down given that there was a very poor outlook. Um, but because the armchair traders, people on Reddit, on these uh, trading apps uh, were all buying it, the stock price went up. But also the stock price went up because hedge funds were having to cover their losses, meaning that they already know that things are going to go the wrong way for them. The share is going up. So instead of waiting and waiting, waiting to see if it comes down, they basically take the loss just in case it possibly could go up even more. And therefore, that actually drives up the stock as well because they're buying back the shares that they, they sold as well. The one thing that I uh, want to talk to you, um, actually Elon Musk, someone that comes up quite a lot in this, um, this, uh, this podcast, but also a number of other commentators, big investors, big speculators, suggested it was shorting stock was a bad thing. It shouldn't be allowed, actually, what Elon Musk was sort of suggesting. What, what do they mean by that? Why would they say that? Well, it's interesting. Exactly as you were saying, Ben, about um, uh, hedge funds covering their short positions by quickly going into the market and buying the shares in order to return them to the institutions that had lent them to them, driving the price up. So shorting can uh, drive prices down and, and create a, a, a kind of spiral where the market goes down and down. And uh, at, at times of um, great financial crisis, regulators always get worried about shorting and, and often they will step in and, and ban it. But actually, it's pretty self-regulating because um, these institutional investors that hold these shares and lend them out, because they're going to hold on to these shares for the next 10, 20 years, they don't mind price fluctuations in the meantime. But there will come a point when the price has gone down so far that when they're putting a value on their portfolio, they'll think, well, that's really annoying because I'm going to hold this share for the next 20 years, but at the moment it's 40% off where it should be. So at that point they're going to say, well, although I'm earning some fees from lending these shares out, the, the extent to which the price has gone right down is beginning to irritate me. It's beginning to affect the value of my portfolio. And actually I don't think it's really worth lending uh, the stock out just to get the fee that it's going to generate. So I'm not going to do it. So what happens is that when shorting reaches a point where it really pushes a market down, the source of the stock lending, the institution investors just stop lending. And at that point, um, those who go in for shorting can't do it anymore because they don't have a supply of stock that they can use to deliver on their side of the bargain when, when they sold the shares. So I regard it as pretty self-regulating. Amazing. Um, moving on slightly about within this story is the part about Reddit. So there is a, I guess it's a forum um, for people that are sharing stock tips and stuff like that. And that was where 
people were encouraged where I guess people were being coordinated uh, were coordinating themselves to to buy shares in GameStop and it's not just GameStop there's been a few other examples of this as well a lot of people have talked about well that's market manipulation what are your thoughts on that Again, it's really interesting. I doubt if the regulators at the moment are going to take the point. But if it, if it becomes um, something that happens regularly and is obviously coordinated, then I think they will step in. Because um, if you get a lot of people through social media agreeing what they're going to do and it has an impact on the market, that is, that is market manipulation. But I think what's interesting about what made it particularly possible this time is the role that Robinhood and other apps played. Because I think a a lot of people were tempted into this trade because it was commission-free. And of course, there's no such thing as a free lunch, so it wasn't actually commission-free. What Robinhood do is they sell the order volume to what are called high-frequency traders, And they will pay for these orders because it gives them an indication of the way the market is moving, which helps them in terms of the own position, their own positions they they have in in the market. But in particular, I think a lot of people were trading on what's called margin. And this can actually be quite dangerous because uh, going back to my example of, of buying the house, I buy the house and I pay for it. But with the GameStop shares, Uh, when uh, people were trading through these apps, basically the apps were saying, you don't have to put any money up now, okay? Just do the trade and then we'll settle it in due course. And that's called trading on margin. And actually Robin Hood over one weekend when this was really taking place had to raise uh, almost three and a half billion dollars because the clearinghouses involved were requiring Robin Hood to make good the margin call. What margin does it's basically a margin of safety that clearinghouses require because otherwise if positions get out of hand and they're not underpinned by some collateral, some money, then the clearinghouses themselves are going to be affected because they'll have trades that, that default. So they uh, said to Robinhood, you've, you've, you've got to provide us with more margin. And I think that that actually was encouraging people into the market because they didn't have to make good their trades. And I've heard stories since of people who traded through these apps who found actually that they were on the hook for for you know tens of thousands of pounds of losses depending on when they were in and when they got out of the market amazing really interesting i sense that um you are maybe skeptical about these trading apps that allow people to do free commission do you see there being wider issues with them is it a good thing that allows more people into the market for instance Um, and actually should it be so easy to trade stocks one thing that did come up is that a story on the bbc today was that um obviously uh, gamestop uh, which is listed as gme um went up in value but also a a stock an australian mining stock um a company called gme also saw a spike in trading. So people were, it was so easy to trade, I guess, that people were um, making the mistake because they were typing it in and uh, coming up with the, with the wrong company on these apps. But basically my question is, is it a good thing for the market? Is there worries about it in your mind? 
Well, I'm, I'm quite torn about this because I don't want to sound like everybody's dad and say, oh, no, this is a terrible thing. You know, uh, you young people shouldn't be doing this. It's just pure speculation. Because actually, if it's a way of getting people interested in the market, I think it's, it's a great thing to do. But what worries me is when people think this is a, a short-term source of easy money because it isn't. It is pure speculation. Now, it may well be that you are at heart uh, a trader. You've got a trader's mentality, in which case you will be very good at this. But most people aren't like that. And if you are good at this, you generally end up being a trader at an investment bank where the bank is taking the risks and you're, you're taking the bets, as it were. So what worries me is when individuals uh, think that this is an easy source of, of return, as, as they might do with, with cryptocurrencies, and then they get very, very badly burnt. Uh, and, and that's really what worries me. But if actually it encourages people to take an interest in the financial markets, then I think that's great. But the financial markets are really two things masquerading as one. At one extreme, they are like a casino. They're a place where you can, you can bet. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, they are a place where long term you can protect your money for your retirement. And, and it's easy to mistake one for the other, I think. That, that's what really worries me about it. But otherwise, if it interests people in the financial markets, I, I, think, I think that's good. Uh, one other thing I'd just like to say, um, in, in the coverage of this, it was implied that most of these so-called armchair traders were, were very young people. Actually, a lot of them were intraday traders. These are, an intraday trader is somebody who does this they basically get up in the morning in their pajamas, they sit in front of their screen all day, and they hope that by the end of the day, they made a profit. And then they do it again the next day and the next day. And, and these people can be pretty grizzled veteran traders. But the only problem is that it is so difficult to make a living that way that a lot of them just fall by the wayside. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with waking up and staying in your pajamas at the moment. It's definitely something um, that a lot of people, I'm sure, are doing at the moment uh, as, uh, as well. But I um, completely appreciate your thoughts on that story. I think we're going to leave it there for that one um, and move on to the next one. So the second story for this week is all about green investing and um, more generally green consumption. Over the various lockdowns over the last year, um, it's been a pretty trying time. But the one thing it has led to is less pollution, less people flying long distance uh, as well, which can only be seen as a, a positive thing for the, the, the world and the environment around us. But what we want to focus on is green investment, something that um, before the pandemic has, as well has been on the, on the rise. And you might have seen uh, maybe a bit more of a niche story than the, the previous one, but the, the world's largest investment manager, BlackRock, um, is taking the move that they are going to flag if companies aren't working towards a net zero greenhouse gas gas emissions by 2050 and um, what i wanted to talk to you uh chris what actually is green investment and um, more specifically a, a term that's banded around within this and it'd be good to get your insight on what is uh, esg investing as well um yes e esg is the the kind of the 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 buzzword as it as it were it, it stands for environmental 
social and governance. And it's a way of looking at a business to see whether it's environmentally responsible, whether it uh, respects its local community and stakeholders. Uh, that's the social bit. And whether from a governance point of view, it's properly run and accountable to its shareholders. So it's, it's a way of looking at businesses to see whether they are being run ethically, essentially. One thing, it's quite clear, obviously BlackRock, a massive company, huge amount of um, um, assets under management. They are making what seems like quite a bold statement in this, in, in this, uh, in this space. What advantages do they get as a company beyond the kind of more global widespread advantages of just um, being, having investment into businesses which are um, going to be positive for the environment? What I find really interesting about this story is that um, it, it kind of confounds our expectations of business because, um, you know, the usual reputation business has is that uh, you only do things for profit and you're not interested in anything else. And actually, this whole ESG theme, it, it really is taken very seriously by business. And the reason for that is that actually it, it's good business to do so. And, and I see it from two points of view. Well, one is that going green creates a demand for new products. So for example, um, a, a leading Danish energy company has switched to being the largest wind farm owner in the world and is now a very valuable business. And, and obviously that creates a demand for all of the components that go into wind farms. We've mentioned Elon Musk and Tesla. One of the reasons why Tesla is of interest to investors is because of its emphasis on developing lithium batteries, which are going to be quite crucial for electric cars. And it's very interesting that looking at some African states that are on the equator, they are generating 100% of their power consumption from solar power. So this is a real fundamental switch that is going on around the world, which in itself is producing great opportunities for suppliers of the relevant components. So it's good business. But secondly, it's good business generally reputationally, because if you want to impress your customers, if you want to recruit employees who are going to be really good, then you want to make sure that your customers and employees can identify with your brand values. That, that's really, really important these days. Um, so again, it, it just makes good business sense to be committed to these things. And the third thing, and this is more a feeling than anything else, but I just can't help feeling that one of the beneficial impacts of the pandemic, if there can be said to be such a thing, is that we're now much more mindful of what we're doing and the choices we make. And um, going back to your theme, Ben, of, of you know, David and Goliath, I think as consumers, we're now aware, and, and the, the whole uh, Reddit phenomenon with, with the GameStop story, we're now aware that we can make a real difference. And in our buying choices, we can make a difference. And business understands this. So going back to BlackRock, a lot of the money that BlackRock manages is pension fund money. And pension fund trustees are looking 20, 30, 40 years ahead. And there's no point in investing in businesses that are going to mean that there is no future 20, 30 or 40 years ahead. So I think the big, the, the big message for me is uh, this is something that business is taking very, very seriously for very good reason. 
yeah, really massively agree. You can see stuff with like BP have massively shifted their strategy, one of uh, the UK's biggest companies um, and a lot of other companies in that kind of oil and gas or traditionally in that oil and gas space are, are definitely making huge changes and huge shifts away um, as they see the future is coming um, very quickly as it has a habit of doing. Um, one thing that interested me when we were emailing before the podcast and having a bit of a chat about the stories is that you suggested that it was a bit of a struggle sometimes to find genuinely green investments. Um, do you mind like telling us a little bit more about your thinking around that? Yes, I, I, I think it's I think it's difficult because most businesses have quite a considerable carbon footprint, and they and they use energy, not all of which is is um, created in 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 a green way. So I I think it is quite difficult for businesses to become as green as they would like, and there is certainly a phenomenon called greenwashing, which is where businesses appears to subscribe to ESG principles, but actually, in fact, they're not really. And what I think is useful here is that there is a, a, a UN-backed uh, a code called Principles for Responsible Investment. And there are fund managers out there who absolutely subscribe to this code, and they expect their investee companies to do the same. But just going back to the theme that this is good business, Terry Smith, who's a very, very well-known uh, uh, fund manager, for some time now, he's had a sustainable fund that has been run alongside his main equity fund. And the returns on that have not suffered because the investee companies are ESG companies. In other words, what investors are realizing is that you don't, you don't sacrifice financial return to do good for the planet, that actually uh, uh, espousing ESG gives you a good investment return. And that's why I think people are waking up to the fact this is both a good thing to do ethically, but actually a good thing to do in business terms as well. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we did see um, in a survey that um, 55% said that they were more likely um, to invest green um, because of the impact of the pandemic and what's going on in the world at the moment. I've got one more question on this, uh, Chris, um, if you don't mind. And it is quite a big one because there's a lot of suggestion that capitalism and how business operates at the, at the moment um, and the green agenda just can't go hand in hand. It's too tricky. And actually you alluded, alluded to it in your previous answer that um, some companies are trying to sort of appear maybe more green than they actually are. Do you feel that more needs to be done maybe by governments um, to ensure that maybe capitalism is curbed in a way or it's done responsibly to ensure that this green agenda can be really driven forward? It, definitely. I'm, the, the thing about government is that it, it's, um, it's quite a blunt instrument at times to generate change. But I think it is so important that politicians are, are seen to to wave the flag, as it were, and to put in place both taxes that penalize businesses that, that aren't sufficiently green, but also incentives to encourage others that are, which actually, generally speaking, governments have, have been um, doing in the past, but I, I, and, and in the recent past, and most certainly at, at the moment. But I think there's a broader question here, and that is, is the nature of capitalism itself changing? And I think it is. I think this idea that capitalism 
is is uh, just out to make money at, at uh, regardless of the cost. I think that I think that I think that's dying a death. I think that's gone. I think the idea that capitalism actually has a conscience uh, that um, stakeholders matter, that um, the impact that you have on your environment matters. I think these things are increasingly part and parcel of what capitalism is about. And possibly the most interesting thing about that is that uh, businesses now don't use to the same extent the big tangible assets that they used in the past, you know, the big factories, the big production lines. A lot of businesses now are actually based on know-how and they are know-how businesses. And know-how is is if you like carbon neutral. So I think increasingly when we're moving into a world where businesses are about know-how rather than pure production, so that actually the amount of um, uh, carbon they produce over time will, is, is itself like, likely to go down, I think. Amazing. I think um, I'm going to leave it there. There's so many big questions. I feel like we could do probably a few episodes of uh, on this as well. But hopefully that gives you a nice taste of what's happening in the green space when it comes to the financial markets as well. Um, and a little bit of insight there from Chris, which was um, amazing. Always an optimist, always positive about uh, the future, which is always uh, fantastic here, especially at a time like this. So the third story that we want to talk about this week is the high street. I know it's something that we've covered in a previous episode, but we want to take it in a little bit of a different direction for you today. Um, And it comes on the back of the news that both Boohoo and ASOS, the online retailers, um, have bought up brands that were formerly part of the Arcadia group. So the, the high street shops that you would have seen from... Um, Dorothy Perkins, Top Man, Top Shop, those kind of stores. So what um, what ASOS, what Boohoo have done? They've bought the brands and some of the stock, actually, in ASOS's case from uh, from Top Shop, um, but they haven't bought the actual brick and mortar stores. So the actual stores that you see on pretty much every high street, or used to see on pretty much every high street. Um, Chris, I wanted to get your sense on this story and your thoughts about them just buying the brand and not actually taking the land and the high street store to continue running that. Well, I I was very interested to see this because um, obviously brands are intellectual property and this this kind of um, follows on from what we were saying about about, um, a green investment that businesses now increasingly it's it's what they know rather than what they manufacture so i was very interested in this because um the amounts of money that have been paid for these brands are not insubstantial you know it's 20 30 million pounds um and so it seemed to me what was most interesting was that these brands actually had value at all because a lot of these brands have been around for a long time. You might think they're quite tired. And yet, obviously, uh, what Azos and Boohoo are planning on doing is absolutely revitalizing them. And, of course, n- not going down the bricks and mortar channel to market whatsoever. You know, they've left those liabilities with the administrators of the insolvency. Definitely amazing. And actually, when you say they're not cheap, I think it was um, around 30 million for um, for uh, the Boohoo deal, which had Dorothy Perkins Wallace in. But actually, the one for 
ASOS that had Topshop, Topman in was more like near close enough to 300 million, including some yeah. stock in there, but about 260, yeah. 65 million for, for the brand. So these are not cheap. This is not a cheap investment for ASOS. That, that's exactly right. And I think what it shows is that we, we are now in a world where brands have real value. Whereas if you looked at business 50, 100 years ago, you'd very much look at the actual tangible assets, the factories, the, um, the, uh, the premises, the, the fleets of trucks delivering goods. Those would be regarded as the valuable assets of a business. But nowadays they're not. They're depreciating assets, whereas brands hold the real value. That's the interesting thing, I think. Um, ever the optimist when we were talking about this, um, you, you were very positive. You were suggesting that the high street, obviously there's that kind of nervousness that the high street you know, has lots of boarded up shops. It's already declining in numbers, well, especially at the moment, but even before the pandemic it was declining in numbers. Um, but you've been reading some research reports and a few bits and pieces and actually more generally are positive about the future of Britain's high streets. Yes, well, what really prompted the story was the fact that I was just listening to the radio and um, somebody from uh, Deloitte, Hugo Clark, who heads their, their retail practice from the consulting side of Deloitte, came on and talked about a report that Deloitte had just um, uh, put together on the changing face of retail and in particular how the high street is bouncing back and how... Um, the shops that are coming are all experiential shops. So not so much places where you buy things, but places uh, where, where, for example, you can have beauty treatments or, or um, where, where, where you can look at things. Although, interestingly, there is uh, one traditional retailer that is coming back in the high street, and that's the greengrocer. But what really interested me about this wasn't all of that interesting that it is. It was the fact of the research report itself, because going back uh, many, many years, I used to write these sort of research reports for um, uh, big consultancy groups. I was just the scribe. I was just the wordsmith. But the way they put them together was that they would commission research. Um, research houses would get together the data by talking to, for example, uh, senior people in businesses. Um, and then they would get the subject matter experts, the consultants of the consultancy to digest the findings. And they'd also have a PR agency involved to have a look at the angles that would make uh, interesting reading and interesting news stories. And so what this uh, uh, sparked in my mind was how actually these research reports they, they do take a lot of effort for consultancies to put together. But from the point of view of if you're thinking of working for one of these consultancies or if you just want to get a feel in terms of commercial awareness for, for what businesses are thinking about, these reports are a really, really good source of information because they're freely available, because they're part of uh, a consultancy's business development. You can just download them from their website. So it occurred to me that from a commercial awareness point of view, they're really useful. First of all, if you're thinking of um, interviewing at one of these consultancies, have a look at the recent research they've published because that's what's on their mind. And so, you know, if you want to talk to them about that, then, you know, they'll, they'll be impressed. But even if you're not thinking particularly of joining a, a, a consultancy or, or an 
agency. These are just really good ways of filling in your commercial awareness. So it was more the fact of the research report. And obviously, from Deloitte's point of view, it was very successful because they, they, they got on national radio. And what the reason they do these things is because they're demonstrating what's called thought leadership. And all professional service firms, from accountants, consultants, PR agencies through to lawyers, they, they all provide thought leadership to their clients. What they're essentially doing is horizon spotting. They're saying, these are the big issues that you need to worry about that are coming over the horizon that could affect your business. And that's why I think these research reports are, are, are really valuable. And best of all, you know, they're, they're free from their websites. I guess with all of this and the research reports and what you talked about thought leadership actually was something that was in my, my mind, given from kind of a marketing background, always we're thinking about how can you position your business to your customers, to your clients as, as being a kind of a knowledge source, especially if you're doing B2B, business to business um, sales. You want to be seen as if there's a particular sector or there's a particular issue or there's a particular um, particular happening in a particular industry, you know that you can go to that business and they will be able to give you the advice because they've shown you that they have been able to produce that advice. And I think it's a really powerful way to do something and position yourself without a direct sale. They're not trying to sell to you through these reports. They're just trying to gently put it put you put their business on your mind um to think about and their expertise in a particular sector um in terms of the commercial awareness point of view um, a lot of students possibly might say well how do i find these things other than when they maybe crop up on news stories or in interviews like you just um explained chris uh, where typically can you find them it, it's a really good point because uh, it, it's not something that, you know, you'll, you'll naturally necessarily do. You need to kind of diarize it, as it were. But if you go to the websites of all of the major consulting firms um, and have a look at their publications pages, that's where you'll be able to find them. And also, invariably, they put out press releases. So if you go to their news pages, they'll say, uh, we've just published a, a brand new report on such and such. And there'll usually be a link to uh, to where you can can download it. So, well, what I would do is just uh, set aside may, maybe half an hour or an hour once a month just to go around the, the 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 major consulting names, just to have a look on their websites and see see if there's anything new. And generally speaking, they will produce a research report uh, once a month, or depending on the size of the, of the consultancy, even more often than that. So there are generally things that to, to, to look at, which they are themselves promoting for, as you were saying, Ben, what they're trying to do is they're not selling their services directly. They're trying to provoke a conversation. They want to get into discussion with clients and, and, and possible clients about the way business is going, because that's where they can help businesses for the future. Yeah, amazing. Completely agree. Definitely do check out if you're applying to those big professional services consulting firms, definitely go for it. But also like shown with uh, this example, if you are applying to the retail sector, for instance, they're also a fantastic source because these consultants are possibly looking to have clients in the retail section, but are providing really good intel 
really good advice which you can take on and it gives you something a little bit extra if you're talking in an interview let's say or on an application rather than um, you've gone a bit further than maybe their company website the about us page and their social media you've gone a little bit more in depth really good thing to show off i think we're going to leave that story there hopefully it's giving you a little bit of an insight we didn't want to go too much into the back into the high streaks we know we've covered it before um, but hopefully that gives you a bit of a sense of what's going on uh, but also a really good uh, really good uh, thing that you can look at to build your commercial awareness moving forward So our final story of the week, and especially if you're a law student, you might have read about this story over the last week. And it's actually about uh, reviews. I've got a title here, Reviews and Getting Into Trouble, which, uh, which uh, seems to summarize this, uh, this, uh, this story um, quite well. The story is um, a law firm brought a, a legal case against a, a, a man that le- left a bad review of the law firm um, based on the website Trustpilot. And um, they took the guy to, uh, to, to court, they sued him, and uh, he didn't actually show up at the, at the, at the trial. And they ordered, um, the courts ordered him to pay 25K. Um, I think the review suggested that the service was, uh, quote, a, a scam of some form um, after paying a 200 fixed fee for some work. I know, Chris, you've got a, a legal background. Um, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on this. It does feel like a review on Trustpilot um, is, uh, is quite an interesting one to spark a story like this, and hence why I wanted to cover it this week. And I, I think it's interesting because I suspect when the person was lead, leaving that review, they were doing it out of annoyance and anger and didn't think that it would end up in court. And I I think from my point of view, what's interesting about this is that um, social media encourage us to respond very, very quickly with the first thought that comes off the top of our heads, as it were. And I I think it's just a plea to be careful about how you use these. So, for example, I've noticed that uh, on YouTube, there are people who've got um, uh, offers of employment with... with, um, professional service firms and and big companies uh, who go on YouTube and say, you know, this is how you can can get a similar sort of offer. And the only thing that worries me is that I get the feeling that they're doing this without actually having consulted their prospective employer. And sometimes they even use the prospective employer's uh, logo and brand. And it seems to me they probably haven't asked permission to do that either. So, Reading this story just made me think that there are there can be terrible unintended consequences from what might have been just a few moments of doing something that at the time you thought was perfectly reasonable. But the same on that, if we've got listeners out there that have put a one star review on Amazon next to a, a toaster or, or something like that, like it is, there, there's no problem with it. This is a particularly specific and special case, isn't it, Chris? It, it is because I, I, I think it was the language that the review used because um, obviously when things are libelous, it depends very much on uh, whether the reputation of the personal entity being libeled is is reduced in stature in the in the mind of right thinking people as it were and i think because the reviewer was talking about a law firm and implied some sort of scam which obviously 
nobody wants to have that said about them. But when you're a law firm and probity is one of the values that underpins your professional standing, that is, that is a pretty serious allegation to make. And I don't know whether when he used that kind of terminology, he, he, he actually had that in mind at all. He probably didn't do. I don't think it's quite clear what his grievance was the stories that I've read about it don't don't report what his particular grievance with the service he received was. It may be that he didn't think he was getting a particularly good service for for the for the fixed fee. But again, um, it's just to warn you to be a little bit careful before you kind of press the send button, as it were, as if you were sending an email. Amazing. Like, well, I don't have the legal um, background as well, but my sort of sense of of it when I started reading about it and had a little look from, I guess from a more like marketing PR places that it is a little bit risky for the, for the, for the company, for the law firm to get embroiled in this sort of stuff, because there's obviously, you know, the review wasn't um, publicized beyond just being on the, the trust pilot website, which is n- not good. I completely granted for the firm for, um, you know, with that sort of language being used on their, on their, on their page. But at the same time, by taking this action, um, it's brought the story into into light that possibly someone wasn't quite as happy with the work and stuff like that. And so there is a bit of a, a balancing act between um, making sure that you're protecting yourself um, against um, possibly negative image um, online, but then possibly by taking action, which um, brings that kind of negativity um, very much into the widespread um, widespread media. For instance, we wouldn't be covering the story now if it wasn't for the fact that they took that action as opposed to just let it lie um, very begrudgingly, I'm sure, and very annoyed they would be. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it is, it is, uh, is definitely an interesting one. Um, do you think it possibly, maybe not setting a dangerous precedent, that's probably the, the wrong word for it, Chris, but is it, do you think that, um, you know, there's possible worries that um, other reviews and everything else could be could be looked at, or other similar sort of comments on online could be could be looked at as well. I, well, I think an interesting aspect of it is that Trustpilot uh, themselves are, uh, as 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 of today's date, as we're making this podcast, thinking of taking this further because I think platforms are increasingly in the spotlight, as we all know, in terms of what responsibility they have for the con- content that is posted on them. But just going back to, you know, the, the old laws of libel, I mean, uh, libel is an incredibly complicated area of law, and, and it does change. But by and large, uh, anecdotally, you know, people who resort to the courts to defend their good name, by and large, it's a fairly unpredictable process and an expensive process and generally speaking for exactly the reasons you've given Ben when you emerge at the other end have you emerged with your reputation restored and intact well it's questionable because if it's generated that much publicity then you've kind of lost control of it really so I think with something like that nobody really emerges from it completely intact. I think we will leave that. Hopefully that's given a little bit of insight. And I've, I was always interested. As soon as I saw a story earlier this week, I was really interested uh, for your take on it. We haven't actually discussed it beforehand. So I was just really engaged by what you've been saying there in a really nice way, really interesting way, especially if you are a law student 
um, or looking to go into law, a really nice way to end. But hopefully this podcast has given a little bit from, for everyone from um, green sustainability to uh, trading to, um, to a bit of law as well at the end. Um, it's my absolute pleasure, as always, to do it with Chris. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Um, did you enjoy it? Did you feel it went well this week? Uh, I always enjoy it, Ben, and it's because of the way you run them. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Thank you so much to Chris as well for what a wonderful comment to end it on, um, but also a fabulous episode as well. I'm sure that you'll agree. As discussed, we have got an Instagram channel, so do get over there and uh, you'll find lots of great content. And as I say, please do share it with loved ones, friends, everyone that you know to spread the word and get people thinking commercially. Thanks a lot. And until next time, have a great month.